Bibles to Esther chapter 2, continue on in series that began just a couple weeks ago. And while you are turning there, I guess pause turning there if you're still, let us pray and ask the Lord for his help. Fathers, we come to your word this evening. We ask that you would speak. For we are reminded that all of Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So Lord, as we want to be your children, as we want to be of service to you, we ask that you would equip us, make us competent children. So would you speak, we pray. Amen. And Esther chapter 2, I'll be beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abahal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of our Lord. Now, it has always been the case that the church has had to wrestle with how to live in how to interact with an evil and a hostile world. Christians have had to ask themselves how to be faithful to God, how to obey his commands, how to love their neighbors, all while facing the potential backlash and retaliation from those around them when they exercise their faith. This may not necessarily have been as much the case in America in the last century or so, but even that freedom has been the historical exception, not the rule. And it's an exception that is quickly fading as we face our own growing opposition in our communities. It's a question of how do we live faithfully amongst an unbelieving world? And this question of faithful living in the midst of opposition and unbelief is put on clear display here in the second chapter of Esther. We saw there is a Jew, Mordecai, living in the citadel, which is sort of the, the palace complex in the city of Susa, which was the summer capital of the entire Persian Empire. And so Mordecai, the Jew, is deeply entrenched in Persian society. It's the capital. He, he, he is in deep with the Persians. And we learn that he arrived at this position because he was the great grandson of Kish, the Benjaminite, who was one of the exiles from Jerusalem who were exiles during the exile when Nebuchadnezzar carried out the exile. You kind of get the author's point here as he's describing Mordecai's position. He is incredibly far from home, not just geographically, but religiously, culturally, emotionally, 
He's not where he is meant to be. His people, God's people, are in the midst of a generations-long judgment where God has handed them over. He's not protected them from their enemies. And so in this time period, the Jews are asking themselves, how are we meant to live? How do we recognize the fact that we're not home, that we're living amongst an unbelieving people, and how do we do that while still acknowledging our Jewish faith? That's a question we're going to answer this evening. But before we get to that answer of how we are meant to live, I want us to spend some time considering the particular circumstance that Mordecai and his cousin turned adoptive daughter find themselves in. King Ahasuerus has just returned from his failed military campaign against Greece. He is embarrassed. His allies are beginning to desert him and question his greatness. And he comes home and remembers that his queen, Vashti, had been banished from his presence forever before he left on this military campaign because she refused to heed his commands. So the king is rightly depressed. He's saddened by this remembrance of what he has done. And so his top advisors, the ones who had him banish Vashti in the first place, come up with another brilliant plan. They say, let's get you a new queen. And you remember in chapter one how vast the Persian Empire was, the most powerful nation at the time. 127 provinces, and they go through every single one of them. They round up every woman they can find who was young, unmarried, and good-looking, and they bring them back to Susa to present them to the king. And then after a year of beautification, they would be brought one by one to the king for a one-night stand and then be set aside into the king's harem to live out the rest of their lives in solitude and seclusion and spouseless, unless the king invited them back by name to be his new queen. Now, historians note that this conscription into the king's harem, while appalling to us, wasn't necessarily seen as loathsome by those in Persia at the time, and not even by the women who were being called into the king's palace. Undoubtedly, there were many who would go mourning, but many others saw it as just simply their, their royal duty, got to obey the orders of the king, and they were honored to serve in that way. Some even saw it as a way to be lifted out of poverty and to be provided for. And surely many of them had aspirations of actually becoming queen. I do find it a bit ironic that our, our modern sensibilities would shudder at this type of recruitment, this type of objectification of these women, and yet millions of men and women tune in every week to see what transpires on The Bachelor, where 
50 young, beautiful women are paraded before a man they've never met to compete for his affection. We have no problem tuning in for that. See, our, our culture still sells the same lie to women that using your bodies to get what you want is an appropriate and justifiable means of providing a future for yourself. Think of one of the main aims of modern feminism has been to free women from the stigma of promiscuity so they can be more free to act like men and not have to fear the the social, the financial consequences of this behavior. Right? Think about what modern feminism demands. They demand that the modern woman get more money, more power, more prestige, more sex, and do not let anybody stand in your way that would want to tell you otherwise or hold you back from these pursuits. That's what's being sold today in our culture. It's the same as what was being sold to these women in Persia. And as we look at the king's behavior, we ought to look in disgust and ask, why he had to acquire all these concubines for this one-night fling and set them aside. But we should also look at disgust in our own world, in our own culture, and ask the exact same thing. Just because today's harems are collected through a virtual database doesn't make the objectification, the hoarding, the, the using up and casting aside of women any more forgivable. It's the same heart condition that Ahasuerus had that we have in our culture today. It's the same pattern of old, just scrolling through one concubine after another, after another, tossing each one aside to move on to the next. There really is nothing new under the sun. We still today have the same broken view of gender and relationships and how to relate to one another. And so we ought to be rightly appalled at the king's behavior. We ought to be rightly appalled at the culture that would allow such theft of the future of these women. But we also must be appalled at the sin that is so rampant in our own day to pray against the purveyance of such unrighteousness and fight against these evils in our own hearts. We are all tempted in the very same ways to look like our culture. So young men, they need to hear the words of the Father in Proverbs 7, who's speaking of the fool when being tempted by a seductress, says, that all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver and as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. What you watch, what you look at, what you linger over, what you meditate upon has consequences. The Father and Proverbs tell you that pursuing the seductress will cost you your life. It will leave you in ruin. And young women need to be reminded that 
Your worth is not in how much attention you can get from all of the men around you. Did you hear the words of 1 Peter 3 that not to let your adorning be external in the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You don't need to use your bodies to get what you want. You need to pursue Christ in humility and gentleness. God's people, men and women, must be distinct from the world, especially in the way the world pursues its sexual pleasure and gratification. We must not be like our culture. So as I said, there is nothing new. So as the culture of the day in Persia, and in the midst of this Miss Persia competition, we are introduced to a young woman named Hadassah. It's her Hebrew name, or we more popularly know her as Esther, which is her Persian name. We're only told a few things about Esther. We know that she's being raised by her older cousin Mordecai because her parents are dead. And because she's being raised by Mordecai, she too lives in Susa, in the citadel, in the capital. And most importantly, at least to this part of the story, she's an incredibly attractive young woman. And so, because she meets the criteria of the king's edict, she too is taken into the palace to compete for the king's favor. She doesn't get to escape this command. And here is the dilemma that we observe in our story. As Esther is taken from him, her adoptive father, Mordecai, commands her not to make her Jewish identity known. And as she has always done, from the time she was a little girl, she obeys her father. She conceals her faith. Now, what the text is silent on is whether or not she actually compromises her faith in concealing it, whether or not she actually breaks God's law or she's just trying to observe it in private. Again, some scholars make the argument that, that no, she just practiced her faith in private. She, she, she tried to, to remain faithful, but not so that anyone could see her. But many others point out that it would be virtually impossible to spend years in such close quarters to her royal attendants and have them not know that she was a Jew if she was actually keeping all of God's laws. Just think about basic food laws, Sabbath observances, let alone observing all of the Jewish feasts that she would have been commanded to observe. The worship of Yahweh is the one true God. The reading, reciting, meditating upon the Torah day and night that would have been commanded of her. Or any other daily practices that the Jews ought to have been keeping. See, it is one thing to be able to practice your faith secluded in the privacy of your own home and be able to keep that from being known. It's something else altogether, being locked away in the king's 
palace with his royal servants watching your every move. For Esther to conceal her identity as a Jew meant she must have had to break God's commandment. She would have had to have set aside his law, be unfaithful to her God so that her faith would not be known to those around her. And our, our best guess at Mordecai's reasoning, his motive for this command to conceal herself, was probably a fear of reprisal from the empire against Esther if they discovered her identity. Because we see later on that every day he, he walks in front of the court where Esther would be kept to see how she was doing. He was checking in on her. This young woman that he loved as a father that was forcibly removed from his custody, who's now at the whim of an unstable and indulgent king. He's worried for her welfare. And so he commands her, don't let them know that you're a Jew. As afraid as they may have been, Esther and Mordecai, though, had a decision to make. Who were they going to be? Esther was in exile, living in a foreign land. A young woman caught up in a wicked, perverse show of power. How would she live? Would she live as Hadassah, the Jewish child of God, or as Esther, the daughter of a Persian socialite? How did she want others to view her? How did she want to be seen? As we heard this morning, we too are exiles in a foreign land. This is not our home. It's not where we belong. We are amongst a people who do not share our values, who do not care for what we care for. Our neighbors do not understand our views of holiness and of righteousness and obedience to God's law. In fact, we know righteousness will always look strange to the world. And then sometimes our righteousness will cost us in the midst of the world. But we have the same decision to make. Will we live as children of God or will we hide our faith, compromise our beliefs in order to be seen as children of the world? Now, as we wrestle with that question for the remainder of tonight, let me help us make a few observations of Esther's situation that I hope will shed some light upon our own. First, we ought to understand things probably were not actually as bad as they seemed. Yes, Mordecai had every reason to be afraid for the welfare of his daughter. He's no longer going to be able to look after her and protect her himself. Any parent would feel this fear. And yet, his perception of the threat that she faced was likely warped by the fear that he felt. How often does your experience align with 
reality when you are just in the midst of being gripped by fear of what will happen. Gonna have a time of self-confession. Your pastor is weird. Just deal with it. When I was young, I don't know, six, seven, uh, I would hate swimming in the swimming pool by myself because I I would convince myself that there was probably going to be a shark right behind me and I was in grave danger. I told you I'm weird. Deal with it. But never mind the fact that I'm in a swimming pool that I know is shark-free, that there's no possible way there could be anything to attack me. And yet fear would oftentimes set in and I convinced myself that somehow a shark could just materialize and swim and attack me and I would be a goner. So I just needed to have this panic and get out of the pool. Okay, what happened there? Fear warped my perception of reality. Okay, how often does our own fear warp our perception of reality. Let's think about Esther's situation for a moment. Yes, the Jews still had enemies in Persia. We're going to see that later in the next chapter. But King Ahasuerus wasn't particularly antagonistic toward the Jews. Uh, We'll see that later on in subsequent chapters as well. But think about this. The king's father He actually permitted the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, and he also supplied the materials for them to rebuild the temple. The king's son would soon permit Nehemiah to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and actually issue decrees protecting and promoting that work. So, historically, we actually see that the kingdom of Persia was somewhat friendly towards the Jewish people. But also think about all the historical examples of God's faithfulness to his people in hostile situations. Think of Daniel and his friends just a few decades earlier. God rewards their faithfulness to him. God begins to promote them through the Babylonian court, even though they keep all of his laws. He spares their lives on multiple occasions. Was Esther in as great of danger as she at first appeared to be? I don't think so. But even if she was in that great of danger, God's people ought to always fear God more than we fear man. No amount of danger or rejection ought to compel us towards disbelief and disobedience and forsaking our faith. And again, this does not mean that we ought not have discussions about how to be shrewd in in living out our faith in the midst of the world. There aren't discussions about how to seek to live peaceably with all around us. Or that missionaries in in closed countries should just broadcast, hey, I'm a Christian, here here I am, come and kill me. Or that their churches shouldn't find secret places to meet. Instead, just say, hey, here we are, we're we're all gathering together, worshiping God, why don't you come arrest us? That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that God's people must always choose 
to please God rather than man. Don't affirm something that you know to be a lie so that you can better secure your promotion. Don't soft-pedal your convictions to your friends so that you'll be invited to the next neighborhood barbecue. Don't trade in your righteousness because you want to look respectable in the eyes of the world. In short, don't fear man. For the worst that man can do to you is kill you. We ought to fear the one who can cast both body and soul into the fires of hell. We ought to fear our God more than we fear our, fear man. We have to love our God and his commandments more than we love the acceptance and the praise of man. Second, we see that compromise has cost. I think starting with the desire to remain in Persia instead of return to Jerusalem with God's people. Again, there's a whole host of Jews who who remained, who, who didn't go back when King Darius allowed their return. Maybe Mordecai had a lot of good reasons to remain. But wouldn't a return home to God's promised land where his presence was meant to dwell have been a better place to make a home than in the courts of the Persian capital. I think if Mordecai and Esther hadn't lived in the shadow of the empire, would she have even faced conscription into the harem? If she hadn't hidden her identity later on, would the king have ever even allowed an edict threatening the extinction of the Jews in the subsequent chapters? Would Esther have ever had to risk her life to go before the king unsummoned to save her people? I think each step of the way, we can see how one fearful compromise leads to greater consequences requiring more compromise. Think if you're afraid to share your faith at work so that you can maintain respectability, how much more is it going to cost you to be faithful the higher you climb the corporate ladder? If you go along with one sin with your classmates, your teammates, so that they won't tease you, what's to keep you from going along with the next one and the next one and the next one? Compromising your convictions to maintain credibility only leads to greater pressure to compromise further down the road. Compromise has consequences, which leads us to our third and final observation, that faithfulness will eventually be required. You, you can try to hide your faith, try to just keep your head down, lay low, remain quiet for a while, not draw attention to yourself. You can do that for a little bit and maybe even do it while not technically breaking any of God's commands. But eventually, your loyalty to your God is going to be tested. 
Your willingness to obey God or bow to man will be challenged. Think. Next chapter, Mordecai has to decide. Is he going to pay homage to Haman? Esther had to decide. Is she actually going to make her people and her lineage known to the king? One day you will finally have to answer for all those backwards things that Christians believe that the Bible teaches. And that if Jesus really is the only way to salvation, you can lay low for a while. But at some point you're going to have to take a stand. So we must decide now, how will you answer that call? Let us be a people who are resolved to glorify God in all of our lives, in all of our words, and in all of our deeds. Let us be a people concerned more with the clarity of the gospel than with the approval of man. That day is coming. We see it came for Esther. It came for Mordecai. The longer they compromise, the more it cost. So let us be a people committed to standing firm upon the good news. Now here's some more good news for all of us this evening. Many of you maybe here just feel the weight and the sting of, of past failings, ways that you've given in to fear. The good news is that God's grace is still sufficient for you in your present and in your future testing. You don't need to, to wallow in the shame of the ways that you feel like, you know, I wasn't as bold as I should have been. You don't need to wallow in the shame of, of where you gave in to sin to fit in. That does not define who you are as a child of God. You can be set free by the good news of the gospel of grace. And then pray for God's continued strength to stand in your next testing. Think, for those who know the story of Esther, how it unfolds, you know that God doesn't cast her off, doesn't cast Mordecai off for this act of unfaithfulness. He continues to remain faithful to them. Why? Because he's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness and a God of mercy, a God who keeps his covenant promises to his people. I think every hero of the Bible is a flawed and fallen individual who stumbles along the way, and yet God chooses to work through those imperfect saints to advance his glorious plan. Think, again, of all of the compromises that we've seen, and yet God still in his sovereignty makes Esther more beautiful than all the others in the kingdom. He still gives her favor in the sight of Haggai and Hahasuerus, and he still makes her queen so that one day she may be in a position to act in faith and to save God's people from destruction. Even in their unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. He stare, still carries out his sovereign plan, even when we fail in the midst of it. We see the beauty of this story, that an all-knowing, 
all-powerful, sovereign God chooses to unfold the events of history through and in spite of his imperfect people. And even as we see these missteps from his people, we think of our own missteps, our own failings, the, the, the conversations we wish we could have back, the acts that we wish we could do over. These same missteps are moving in the direction of salvation for all of God's people. It's the good news for us tonight, Christian, that you cannot undo God's sovereignty. You cannot outrun his grace and his patience. He is working all things, even your failings, together for your good and for your salvation and the salvation of all his elect exiles. Yes, we've, we've failed. And we as God's people, we do what his people have done for all of history. We repent of our past failings. We, we rest in his present grace and we commit to walking future steps in faith. Knowing that God is the one who is in control. God who is the one who is working all things for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can see failings of your people that you still choose to use in mighty ways. We can look at our own failings and know that we have not undone your good and gracious plan. So Lord, would you help us to rest in your grace, to rest in your sovereignty, and to commit ourselves to faithfulness, to obedience, to clarity, trusting that you are working all of these things for the glory of your name. I pray this in the name of Christ, our great high priest, our blessed Savior. Amen.